0: morning Uh, what a beautiful day have you been enjoying the sunshine this week what a treat um and good morning to those of you who are watching online great to be here with you this morning and this morning we are going to talk about expectation or expectations i don't know how uh, whether you've noticed you probably have how much um our expectations influence the way we do life um this this week i was um I went to the door to say goodbye to a friend, I was enjoying the, uh, the sunshine so I didn't have any shoes on. My doorstep is normally a pretty safe place so I walked out on the door, onto the doorstep to say goodbye and uh, I trod on a bee because I had no shoes on. I didn't expect a bee to be there so I trod on a bee and uh, I got a sting in my foot. <laughs> I didn't get the whole sting, I managed to get most of it out so my foot is quite itchy this morning but uh, I didn't expect it to be there. And, uh, you know, very small example, but much of what we do in life depends on what we're expecting. Um, my middle son was offered £20 as he was walking up our road this week by uh, some race goers. It was pouring with rain on Wednesday, wasn't it? And the Irish guys clearly hadn't expected it to be raining because they were walked up, walking up the road looking like dr- uh, drowned rats and uh, needed something to cover them. He didn't take it actually, I don't know why. (laughs) If you were somebody who expected to run out of loo roll uh, at the beginning of 2020 because of COVID, well, you will have been one of those stockpilers. We won't ask for a hand show. (laughs) But then there are other expectations, aren't there, that have slightly bigger consequences for us. You know, Other expectations make more of a difference to our lives. So if, if I'm somebody who has a lot of negative expectations about my future and how it's gonna pan out, well, I'm gonna struggle with anxiety. My eldest son, expected to do really, really well in his degree. He expected to get a top-notch degree with no work. I won't tell you. You can can imagine what he did. I won't tell you how it panned out. And actually, many of us will have read that since 2014 and the annexation of Crimea, uh, Operation Orbital has been in action. The British Armed Forces training the Ukrainian Armed Forces because they expected that there would be a breach of their borders again. Those kind of, you know, there are other expectations, aren't there, that have bigger consequences in our lives. And that's because expectations are significant to our experience of life, aren't they? The kind of things we expect or we don't expect are, are significant to the way we experience life. And it is true with our life with God as well. It is no different in our life with God. Our expectations of Jesus influence what we experience of jesus to a large extent and they influence the kingdom life we experience as today's story is going to show we're digging uh we're carrying on with our series of meals with jesus if you've got your bible you might want to get out at the gospel of luke the book of luke in the new testament and we're looking at possibly the biggest meal in history today it's the feeding of the five thousand. i don't know about you i love this story wouldn't you have loved to be there I mean, wouldn't you have loved to be on the team? <laughs> I mean, I don't know how many of the 5,000, you know, knew that I a mean, actual miracle was going on uh, in their midst, but absolutely amazing. So I'm going to read from Luke 9, uh, 7 verses, 10 to 17, from the message version. I'm actually going to read it this morning. When the apostles returned, and they'd been out and about uh, healing, they told Jesus everything they'd done. Then he slipped quietly away with them towards the town of Bethsaida. But the crowds found out where he was going, and they followed him. He welcomed them and taught them about the kingdom of God, and he healed those who were sick. And then late in the afternoon, the 12 disciples came to him and said, send the crowds away. Don't you love the disciples? They're so practical, aren't they? And not very, you know, kind or considerate half the time, but you know, he still perseveres with them. Send the crowds away to the nearby villages and farms so they can find food and lodging for the night. There's nothing to eat here in this remote place. But Jesus said to them, you feed them. I bet he had a tongue-in-cheek there with a bit of a twinkle in his eye. But we've only got five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Or are you expecting us to go and buy enough food for this whole crowd? I think there was probably a bit of sarcasm in that response. For there were about 5,000 there. And it was 5,000 families, not 5,000 individuals. So there were possibly, I don't know, 20, 25,000 people there. Jesus said to them, tell them to sit down in groups of about 50. So the people all sat down. Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish. Who knows where they came from? The story doesn't tell us. I don't know where the little boy came from. He seems to be a figment of somebody's imagination. He kept giving the bread and fish to the disciples so they could distribute it to the people. They all ate as much as they wanted. And afterwards, the disciples picked up how many baskets? Twelve. More than they'd even started with. Baskets of leftovers. Now, for those of you that have been using this book that we've been, uh, you know, following Meals with Jesus in your families, I hope you've been enjoying it. There are some fantastic uh, reflections in there, you know, brilliant, brilliant material. And then we've got our devotionals um, on the website. But I hope you noticed in doing your reflections this week, those of you that have been using that book, that there has been a really significant word missing from the reflections, and that is the word miracle. This story is about a miracle. So yes, it's about lots of other things as well. It's about Jesus welcoming and having compassion on the crowds. Jesus is full of compassion. Everything he does is out of his compassion. He has compassion on us this morning. He has compassion on you this morning. He'll have compassion on you tomorrow morning. His, the Bible says his mercies are new every morning. Yes, it's about his desire to meet people's needs, to to meet the needs of this hungry crowd. It was late, there was no food, there were no shops nearby, and he wanted to meet their need. And he wants to meet your needs. He is able to meet your need. He wants to meet your needs today. He wants to meet your needs tomorrow. He wants to meet your needs the day after. And yes, it's about his generous provision. You know, this more than enoughness that is what God is like. He's generous, and he gives us more you know, more than enough. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And yes, it's about us sharing what we have because those fish and those loaves came from somewhere. You know, and it's about us offering what we have and then him doing, you know, great things with it. And we might think what we have is very little and insignificant, whether it's our time or our abilities or our resources or whatever. And that, you know, what could God do with that? But actually he takes small things and does big things with them. But this story is also, and I would want to say primarily, about a miracle. It's about the supernatural power of God. and Let's not miss that. It's the only story, apart from the resurrection, that features in all four Gospels. So clearly, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, as they had all the kind of stories of what Jesus had done as they were pulling their accounts together, they had them all laid out on their tables. This story for each of them was a no-brainer to put in. They'd obviously all been so impacted by it. So let's be careful as we read the stories in the Gospels not to miss what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples because there's a lesson in this story for the disciples and so there's a lesson in this story for us. And Jesus is wanting to teach them something. Look back at the text. Look at verses 13 and verses 14. It's a little uh, bit of chat that Luke includes. And actually, all of the other accounts of this story, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, uh, Matthew, Mark, and John, they all include this little detail as well. Two verses that if you took the verses out and just read the text without those verses, you know, you wouldn't notice that they weren't there. And it's this little bit of chat. You feed them. You feed them. You do something about this. Well, where are we going to get the food? What do you want us to do about it? This little bit of conversation between Jesus and the disciples. And I think what's going on here is kind of um, explained a bit better by John. And in his account, he includes, includes an extra detail. And I kind of imagine, I don't know about you, imagining the scene and what's going on in this sort of discussion about what to do about this situation uh, before the miracle actually happens. But I imagine Jesus sort of with his disciples around him chatting about what, you know, what they're to do. And I imagine him sort of slightly teasing them, slightly being provocative and maybe saying to you know, Matthew and John and, and, I don't know, Peter, um, go on, you feed them. And they're saying, but we haven't got any food. And then I imagine him coming over to Philip Because in the gospel of John, John says that Jesus said to Philip, where can we buy bread to feed these people? So I imagine him having this chat over here and then coming over to Philip and saying, Philip, where can we buy bread to to feed these people? Again, a bit tongue in cheek. And then John adds this interesting and I think very helpful bit of insight to what's going on. And he says this, Jesus was testing Philip for he already knew what he was going to do. And do you know what? That didn't involve a supermarket dash to feed 5,000 families. That wasn't part of Jesus' plan. He had a radical plan, but it wasn't that. He had a kingdom solution for this scenario. He'd got it sorted. You know, he knew where he was going with it all. So why ask the question? Why ask the question? Why provoke the disciples like this if he knew what he was going to do? Well, I think he did it because he wanted Philip and the others to hear themselves process their response to Jesus' expectation that they could do something radically different, and let's face it, impossible. I think he was inviting them to hear themselves speak out their own thought processes about what God was wanting them to do. I think he wanted them to, to listen to how they processed solving problems and solving a problem like this. I think what he was really saying is, boys, do you have a kingdom mindset yet? That's what I think he was really asking. Do you have a kingdom mindset yet? And the answer was, no. None of them had any expectation of God doing something supernatural. None of them had any expectation of God intervening in power in this situation. None of them expected God to do something that they hadn't seen before. A Number of years ago, some of you uh, know this, my mother was, in 1992, she was diagnosed with um, cancer. She went into hospital for a routine operation. They opened her up, they found a tumor the size of a grapefruit inside her that they couldn't operate on. And uh, we went to sort of see her the next day, when she you know, had the op, expecting to be told yes, it was all fine, and suddenly to be faced with this sort of scenario that wasn't even in the, on the cards before she went into hospital. And we were told it's stage four ovarian cancer, there's not much we can do if we don't do anything, uh, she'll be dead in six months, and if we treat her with chemotherapy, you know, she's got, a, she's got a good chance of, of surviving for, for a couple of years. And as you can imagine, it was a pretty kind of shocking, out of the blue, left of center diagnosis, and I can remember Tim and I were newly married, And uh, we went to our life group that night full of some lovely, you know, lovely, spirit-filled Christians who loved the Lord and who'd walked with him for many years. And I can remember pouring out my heart, my shock, my sadness, my fear, and everything else and saying, can we pray for a miracle? And uh, that group that evening, they prayed, and they prayed for all kinds of things, and they loved us, but nobody prayed for my mum to be healed with any level of conviction or expectation. And I went home and I started sobbing and I said to Tim, you know, I was a fairly new Christian. I'd read my Bible and I was just, I sort of slightly panicked and didn't know what to do, but also thought, well, I've read in my Bible that God does things. And, you know, I was just, I, d- I suppose, really upset that in that room, nobody had any kind of expectation that God could do something miraculous. And so Tim and myself and my sister, um, we prayed and we fasted once a week. We're we're fasting, uh, we're pushing down on fasting a bit this month. We don't get something from God when we fast, but there is a direct connection in the Bible between fasting and power. We prayed and we fasted once a week for six months, and nobody was more surprised than me when six months later they scanned my mother and there was no trace of the tumor anywhere. And she lived for another 20 years. Our expectations do make a difference to what we see. They're not the only factor. You know, we live in a complex world. But the human prognosis had been given, and the human prognosis and the human rationalizing and the human experience and what statistics say or whatever had a huge influence on lots of people that I told about my mum. And that was what was going on in Jesus here, with Jesus here. Many of these people, they were successful businessmen. They knew how to manage scenarios. They knew about managing difficult situations. And so as Jesus was kind of provoking them and going, come on, boys, let's feed them, or you feed them, or where can we buy food? They were bringing their best kind of thinking to this problem. Their best, best strategizing, well, Philip says, well, gosh, we need loads of money. And the boys saying, let's go over there, you know, send them over there because there's shops over there and they can buy food. They brought their best thinking, bless them. They brought their, bless, their best thinking but it was human thinking, wasn't it? It was a human mindset that they were bringing to this scenario. So they were only ever going to see a human solution. I don't know about you, but I'm really glad for the sake of that crowd that the disciples didn't have the final say (laughs) because they'd all have gone home. Nobody would have died. They would have gone home. They would have got home late and they would have been hungry and that would have been it. What's the point of what Jesus was teaching them? I think it was this. If we live life based on our human perspectives, and we face every challenge and every situation that we face with a rational, logical mindset, with our limited human perspectives, we will miss so much of what God wants to do in his world, in the situations that we're surrounded by. And we will miss the kingdom solutions that God wants you and me, his people, to usher in. 1 Corinthians verse four, uh, chapter 4 verse 20 says this, The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. And a huge part of Jesus' teaching and training of his disciples was teaching and training them to expect power. To see God's power at work, in life, to expect the impossible. I mean, I love it that even when Jesus is having this complicated, difficult decision, uh, discussion with the disciples about divorce, you know, later on in Matthew's gospel, they're saying, well, this is impossible. What you, the standards you're setting are impossible. And what does Jesus say in response? Again, he's trying to raise the bar of their expectations. He says nothing is impossible with God. And he's trying to teach them to have a nothing is impossible mindset. That was Jesus' question to Philip. Where can we buy food? And Philip hadn't got it. His answer, we've got no money, no food, so there's nothing we can do. (laughs) And actually, if you, I don't know if you're interested in this kind of thing, but there's a conversation in Mark, chapter 8, verses 14 to 17, that you might want to look at later, where Jesus is having another conversation with the disciples about the leaven, the mindsets of Herod and the Pharisees. They're in a boat. They're talking about bread again. And Jesus is referring back to this miracle and going, do you still not see? Do you still not understand? Have you still not got it? But beware of this rational, logical, you know, human problem-solving mindset that you know, mitigates against seeing god's parrot work how did god say how did paul say (laughs) god through paul how did he say transformation comes he says it comes through the renewing of our minds didn't he changing the way we think through swapping an old way a worldly way of thinking about god or about me or about life or about you know you or about our circumstances or about the problems we face swapping an old worldly way of looking at all of that stuff for a new godly way, God's way. That's what Jesus is trying to teach them here. Boys, I want you to look at life. I want you to look at these problems. I want you to look at these situations with God's perspective, not yours. I don't know how you'd feel if a family member kind of rocked up to your house and started rearranging your furniture in your lounge. I know I wouldn't be very pleased about it, but actually that's what, that's what the Holy Spirit wants to do with our minds, to rearrange some of our mindsets, to rearrange some of our thinking. You know, less of our way of thinking and more of his. You know, we don't read the Bible and and pray, you know, just to sort of tick a box. You know, it's all about relationship with Jesus. But those kind of activities are are what God uses to, to rearrange the way we think and the way we look at the world, the way we look at God and the way we look at each other. Jesus is wanting to raise our expectations because there's a link between the level of power that we see, the level of kingdom power that we see in different situations that we're involved in, that we step into, and the level of expectation that we bring to the party. Why were Heli and her friends on the streets this week? Because they expected God to use them and to show up in some of those scenarios. If there wasn't a connection between the level of expectation that we have and the experience that we then have of the kingdom coming through us, why is Jesus trying to teach them this? Why is he bothering to teach them this stuff? Why was he trying to raise their expectations at the picnic? Only this week, I read a testimony of a a Christian who works on an international space station. And uh, he'd been working for years on a problem that was costing uh, the company loads and loads of money. And they'd been unable to find a solution. And he had been listening to a talk on kingdom mindsets. And uh, he went to bed and he prayed. And he said, Lord, I want you to speak to me then and show me how you would approach this problem. And he had a dream about this scenario. And he had a dream about a possible solution And uh, his boss then sort of asked to meet up with him. And he was able to tell him in this meeting about the dream he had and about this possible, you know, quite left of center solution. But the following week, the scientists agreed to sort of adopt the program that he suggested. And it worked. And, you know, not only was there a kingdom solution that had, you know, been evading them with their rational, logical mindsets for months, but also people began to be interested in a God who spoke through dreams, in a God that was interested in science and technology. Jesus solves problems. Jesus approaches challenging situations, doesn't he, in a different way to the way that we do or to the way that I do, to the way that I try and solve problems and come up with solutions or whatever and he wants us i believe that's the point you know part of the point of this story what he's wanting to teach us this morning is to remember that he wants us to have a different level of expectation to those people around us when we look at these different scenarios the holy spirit is always trying to train his followers to think like jesus to think outside the boundaries of possibility But they, these guys, Jesus' friends, they were at the beginning of their journey, and they were still thinking only within the bounds of possibility. I think when Jesus asked this question, you know, you feed them. Where can we buy food? What should we do, boys? Do you know the the answer I think he was longing for? I think he was longing for them to say, well, we can't do anything. We can't fix this, but you can. You've got a solution. You can do anything, Jesus. So you just tell us what to do, and we'll do it. I mean, isn't that what his mum said at the wedding of Cana? When there was no wine, she brought a different level of expectation, didn't she? And she said to them, well, you know, I don't know what he's going to tell you to do, but he can do something about this, so just do what he says. Jesus wants to raise my level of expectation. I know that. I know he wants to raise the level of expectation of many of us in here this morning. So question for you as we kind of bring this to a close. What is your current How big is your current expectation of God? How big is your current expectation of what he can do, what he wants to do, what he will do? And the way that you approach some of the scenarios in your workplace or in the lives of those around you, will tell you something about your level of expectation. The size of your prayers, the size of my prayers, tell God something about my level of expectation about him. Somebody once said, the size of our prayers reflects the size of our God. I think there's a lot of truth in that. Tozer it's one of my favorite authors. He said something very similar. He said this, a low view of God is a cause of a, hundred, of a thousand a hundred lesser evils, but a high view of God is the answer to 10,000 problems. Friends, Jesus wants us to be a body of people who have a high view of God, who pray really big prayers, who have high expectations of what He can do. The camping season's coming up, isn't it? And uh, I'm not a big fan of camping. One of the reasons is often I go to sleep on a pumped up mattress. And the next morning, I wake up, and it's deflated. If I'm really lucky, I won't actually feel the floor and the stones through my mattress. But it's never—we need some new mattresses, (laughs) hon. But it's never as inflated when I wake up the following morning as when I went to sleep the night before. And do you know what? That happens to my expectations of God. I pump up my mattress, I pump up my mattress of expectation and I can have high expectations of God and then I do life, I see prayers unanswered, I get disappointed and the air goes out of my expectations. And some of you will be in here this morning thinking, listening to me and thinking yes, but I've prayed and I've believed and I've had expectation of God moving in power and it hasn't happened. I can say that to you too. I can tell you other stories where I've prayed For a miracle, I've prayed for God to move in power and I've believed and I've really expected Him to move in power and He hasn't. These disciples, I'm no doubt they were full of disappointment. You know, they'd been praying and expecting the kingdom to come for years. They lived in occupied territory. There'd been a genocide on small babies, you know, 30 years prior to this experience. But Jesus was still in the business of raising their expectations. From whatever level they were at, and wherever our expectations are this morning, he wants to raise them again. He's been speaking to me about this a lot recently. You know, he, I'm preaching this to myself as well as to us in here because my expectations deflate so easily from just doing life in this world. Like I said, through disappointments, through not seeing God move, whatever. But God is continually reminding me, and has been reminding me again recently. That I need to be aware of the stuff that suffocates my expectations. And instead of ignoring it, I need to take it on. We've spoken about disappointment in here before. We need to be able to, we need to be willing to wrestle with the stuff that suffocates our expectation. We need to be real about our disappointments and our struggles, you know, to believe for certain things in certain scenarios because maybe of what we've experienced before. We need to wrestle with that stuff rather than just accepting a deflated mattress of expectation because, friends, the scenarios that we're placed in, our workplaces, our streets, our communities, the the school gate, whatever, the places where God has positioned us, he's looking for people who have high expectations so they'll step out and step in and pray big prayers and, and whatever else so that his kingdom can come and people can see that he is a God who moves in power and who loves them. But so much of that hinges on the level of expectation that we carry. So let's be people that wrestle with the stuff that makes the mattress deflate. Let's be honest about that. But let's also be people that allow God to raise our expectations continually. How do we do that? One of the main reasons, one of the main ways is just getting our, our heads into the word that's where I go when I realize my my faith has, has, you know, lost a lot of air. My expectations have diminished. Get out the Gospels and just read the Gospel stories, what Jesus is doing. That's one of the main ways we do it, sharing testimony, encouraging each other, sharing our faith stories. What kind of level of expectation do we want to have? You know, I think we want Jesus to raise our expectations, don't we? For our own sakes, but also for the sake of his world.